Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year, Anteaters. Welcome to my January 7, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Uh, welcome back, Anteaters and all that. Well, so as the winter quarter, uh, you all ought to be thanking your lucky stars that you are not in that deep freeze that your counterparts are in the west, uh, Midwest there. So as we consider the other Midwesterners whose unemployment check stopped this last week, and how are they managing with their thermostats already lowered at 58 degrees? Think about it, SoCal pals. Well, now to my guest. The first will be Irvine Valley College students Django Mangalam and Zachary Ho and graduate student at UCI Noe Rodriguez to discuss their two prototypes for clean cooking stoves. Without the visuals, imagine a meal minus the hazardous particulates. Next, Tom Patterson of Harvard University's JFK School of Government will address the shortcomings of the press along with particular prescriptions in his latest book, Informing the News, The Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Clean cooking stoves are become increasingly important as more displaced populations yield huge numbers of refugees and as toxic cooking fuel in the developing world is hazardous to public health on a multitude of levels. My first guests today are three local college students. Two groups have developed new oven prototypes, mindful of sustainable design and operation. Django Mangalam, a product of Irvine Schools, now attends Irvine Valley College. His current aspirations are for career in the food and agriculture industry. Zachary Ho met Django while at Uni High School in a science class, and they started. They had their shared interest in car design. Zachary, currently ASB Vice President at IVC, is poised to transfer with his business major to a number any one of the UC schools outside of Orange County. Noe Rodriguez, currently a master's student at UCI, received his Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering at UCI as well. His focus is on thermal transport and plans to finish his degree by the end of this fall, 2014 that is. His sights are set on developing more efficient, clean energy designs like the solar stove with the potential for global impact. His fellow engineers on the project include, and I, I maybe know you can help me pronounce it, Lineker Fong and uh, Greg Tomashiro and Steve Young. They recently were awarded, along with their faculty, Derek Dunrank, and $100,000 uh, for from the Bill and Melinda Gates. Yeah, clap everybody. Bill Melinda Gates uh, Foundation, and Noe represents them all at today's interview. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having us. Thank you. We're glad that you are all here. Believe me. So let's start. First, I want to congratulate you, Noe, uh, to you and your team on your award at the Gates Foundation on your first go, no less. I know that's uh, practically implausible. Did all of you, including Professor Dunrankin, have a part in preparing the application? Well, no, I actually I started uh, just this past quarter in the fall, fall 2013. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be able to contribute to this project. I mean, I, uh, I essentially came in and Professor Dunrankin asked me if I wanted to join this project. And I jumped in right away because I knew uh, this is an opportunity to make a global impact. Uh, and it's just a, a huge benefit from the Gates Foundation. I'm very grateful. Well, that then leads me to the question for all three of you here is uh, each of you, uh, you've had, have a problem and a desire to, a problem to tackle and a desire to do good. Which one uh, motivated you more? We can start with, who's, who wants to start first? Okay, Zach, Zachary Ho. Um, as far as which, which one motivated me more? Yeah, I just, just don't know, but open up your engineering heads here on that and business heads. Okay. Um, anyways, yeah, so... From Django's aunt, actually, uh, we heard about the problems with smoke emission uh, throughout Eastern Africa and uh, uh, many of their refugee camps. And we thought, okay, well, it's the idea, um, a, sol a solution seemed plausible. It, it didn't seem too far out of reach. It seems like a solution could be somewhat 
easily found uh, with just some time. And we just thought, okay, yeah, we have uh, the necessary resources. Uh, we have a strong... His Django's parents are uh, heavily involved uh, in UCI. And from there, we thought, okay, well, uh, let's give it a shot. And you know, from then on, it's just been where, where we've been going. And here we are. Django? Um, yeah, so I uh, started to do this definitely because of... Um, I, I definitely want to make a difference in the world. That's a big motivator for me. Um, and so, yeah, when I heard about this problem from my aunt, um, you know, I looked, me, both me and Zach looked at it, and we both agreed that we believe we're both capable of at least helping, uh, helping, you know, to develop a, a good solution for it. Okay. So, um, as I said, uh, that each one you had, oh, no, I did you also, you, you sort of alluded to that, but what, what in the, this kind of a package of doing good and, and uh, solving the pro- the engineering problem, what of that? Which of them motivated you more? I think for me, it was a combination of both. Uh, I always wanted to do good. Um, I knew from the start, even when I started UCI, uh, I wanted to do something that would impact uh, the energy uh, sector and society to make a difference in that area. And I I was very motivated by the example of Professor Scott Samuelson and all the other great professors here at UCI and their contributions to clean energy. And that really motivated me from the start to make a contribution in that area. And then I just love engineering as well. So I think if I can combine those two interests, then that'll make a a better good. Well, fine. Let's let's now talk about the actual... um the designs. Both teams are developing clean stoves, as I mentioned earlier, but you use very different technologies. You're at different stages of development. I'd like to have each of you, uh, each of your two groups here represented, briefly explain how your models work, what you're using, and what the fuels are, and the different structures. Why don't we talk with uh, Zach and and Django about that? Maybe the two of you entangle Django Tango. Okay. Um, essentially, this is Zach. Hi. Okay. So, uh, in, in, as far as fuel goes, uh, it's wood is primarily um, what should be used. Uh, again, anything that's dry, uh, shrubs, for instance, twigs should be used. In terms of your model, should be used. Yes. Okay. Uh, as far as fuel goes, and um, once your stove reaches a certain temperature, there's something called a combustible vortex that emerges within the heat chamber, and that essentially is um, where this, the smoke that that's emitted from the the biomaterial that's burned uh, essentially gets combusted and it burns off in the stove before otherwise reaching breathable air, uh, and that's essentially where a lot of its uh, environmental cleanliness uh, comes from. Okay. Yeah. So uh, and, and the design. So the design. Uh, it, it's so efficient because um, we've managed to get uh, much more airflow. Uh, in our stove than in your standard, you know, campfire or something. So, uh, the main, one of the main, uh, benefits that our stove has is it elevates the fuel source off the ground. So we allow for airflow to come up from underneath the fuel. And as, uh, an air current is developed, it kind of forms a sort of a rocket like effect, aka, or a rocket. Velocity. Yeah, a rocket stove. And so, uh, that so it starts pulling in massive amounts of air, which gets mixed with all this smoke. And because there's so much oxygen around, the fire can burn at a very high te- at a very high temperature, and can burn off um, a great amount of the carcinogens produced. Right, and again, that's what the uh, combustible vortex is yeah. all about. That's where smoke and air and heat are all mixed together to try and burn off as much uh, emissions as possible. And that's what's caused the uh, that those particulates and the gas from the unburned uh, f- uh, smoke. Uh, that's that's the the human toll that you're addressing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, right. And then the the another aspect that, um, and I know that in Noah's product too, that there is a, a part of an efficiency for the user of this that the, that's largely the women that are using the stove, and so you're trying to uh, 
minimize how many how many resources they're out there collecting that takes them away from the, the all of the other tasks they're performing. So there's mm. there's so, so there's so many layers of what um, this design is going after, and 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 we're talking about the depletion of the 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 forest, which is at a rapid rate in some of the the population that. Oh, that you're targeting, uh, Django and Zachary. Right, and just going on top of that, uh, the the process of collecting wood itself um, has has been notoriously dangerous, uh, especially for those uh, women, uh, primarily. The refugees who, or otherwise. Uh, right, right, uh, who are in charge of gathering that wood. And what, what our stove does is, uh, because it, it generates a combustible vortex, what it's doing is using uh, the, the fuel, wood, efficiently, um, where... Essentially, you'd be using a lot less wood, which would then re- require people to not have to go um, at, f- as far out as frequently to, to retrieve wood. And again, it just limits the danger or the potential danger that are posed on such people. Okay. Yeah, and uh, just, so just finishing up. So, uh, yeah, so it burns wood, um, we think, much more efficiently. Um, but, you know, for future uses, we hope to maybe... Uh, expand the variety of fuels that can be used with this stove. So future development, um, we are going to focus on alternative fuel sources that can be uh, combined with our stove to create, you know, the most clean burning uh, flame possible. So that, I mean, that can range from, uh, you know, fermenting cow dung to produce methane. Uh, to other types of dry biomass, to you know what no what Noe uh, has solar. Solar, I think, is a very is a very good uh, uh, fuel source. Let me just go b- what, back. Uh, there's so many facets, so we have to backtrack sometimes. The the design uh, for the rocket stove um, th- that also may have a sort of a a, a ergonomic feature to it for the one using the stove. If you raise up the stove uh, for the user, that perhaps allowing the person to be more more upright that may that may have some kind of a, a, a health uh, potential. Oh yeah, you are st- so the good thing about our stove is, is it's not that big. It's quite small. It can be broken down uh, and carried, you know, in a standard size backpack or just under your arm. And so that's uh, one of our stoves. We think main strengths is that it's uh, so easy to move around. You could set it up almost anywhere. You have, you know, reasonably stable flat ground um, and. Yeah, it could just be used in all types of different environments and transported from one to the other in case of an emergency or anything like that. Zach, thanks. Yeah, and um, the I guess the our biggest challenge was again combining portability uh, with user friendliness and and durability because in these conditions uh, in refugee camps that is, um, there these stoves can are what's the word here? Um, they, they 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 face a host. Of different problems, yeah, 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 environmental uh, obstacles, and so we've gave it a pretty thick construction, a, a sturdy construction, yeah. uh, made out of eighteen gauge stainless steel, and uh, so what that does is, again, it, it it does well for concentrating heat, but also again that durability aspect yeah. behind it. Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the rocket stoves um, used uh, right now, they're they're quite efficient, but. Um, number one, a lot of them are so heavy due to uh, the heavy insulation that people put on them, so they're not very transportable. And number two, some of them, uh, we believe, use a little too much technology to be uh, you know, considered fully reliable. What we want is a stove that we can send out there and you know, it can go for years and years and years. Some stoves out there right now, they have uh, electronic parts which can break or, you know, not function. Uh, so we're trying to, you know, simplify, at, but at the same time make as uh, maximum efficiency for our stove. And we, let's give Noe a chance to um, uh, mention the features because there's all these trade-offs that you've got a much larger design with your solar oven, uh, and it's also, but you don't require the user to go out and collect wood. They they have their supply of salt. So could you t- walk us through the uh, the the proper name for yours that we've talked about the rocket stove. What is the the proper name? That not generic, but it's a solar stove. Right. You know, it's funny. We don't actually have a a name yet for it, but I think a proper name would be possibly solar storage, solar energy storage stove, okay. because it works by storing energy from the sun, radiation from the sun. And the way it does that is that the parabolic trough concentrates solar radiation onto a top surface. The top surface is made of a metal, and so it can it receives the radiation from the sun, absorbs it, 
and then the bo- a box encloses uh, industrial salts. And so when the heat transfers into the salts in the interior, uh, the salt absorbs it and then it melts. Uh, and then it reaches a certain temperature, which is a cooking temperature. And at that uh, temperature... A picking? A cooking temperature. Cooking, I'm sorry. Yes. yes. <laughs> of course, that's all important. Okay. And so once it reaches that temperature, you can actually cook with it. Uh, or what's convenient about it is that you can cook, uh, you can store it in insulation and then use it later. So this is something new because uh, with traditional uh, cheap solar stoves, uh, you can make one out of aluminum, but you will have to use it right away. And It doesn't store. Right, it doesn't store. So this stores the energy uh, using something called a phase transition uh, of the salts. And what's convenient about it is that you don't have to go out and search for firewood. You don't have to go and search for electricity. It just naturally, it's naturally there, and uh, it just stores the energy from the sun. And your parabolic stove can move inside and outside. So, it, I mean, you've got to store the energy up from the sun first, but it could be moved indoors. Uh, I mean, it's transportable. Right. That's a plan. I mean, uh, we're still working on the interior uh, design of, of the of the Because it's big. It's, a, it's, what, three, almost three feet, a meter across, the well, parabolic? No, no, actually, it's about a, let's say, one by one f- foot oh, square. Okay. So I it's must not, have looked at a different prototype. Okay. Right. So the surface itself, uh, our current design isn't uh, that large. Wow. What's large is a parabolic trough necessary to concentrate the solar sunlight. So you can take it off of the parabolic trough and bring it inside? Yeah. Oh, so that's great. So those are two different, uh, two different components. Components of the system. Okay. Right? Wow. Well, for those of you who just strolled over to your radio, want to know what is all this uh, energetic uh, thinking that's come from that you've turned in, tuned into, ask a leader here on KUCI eighty-eight point nine. FM in Irvine, streaming all over uh, the kitchen outlets uh, in the world at, on the web at KUCI.org. My guests are UCI Engineering School graduate student Noe Rodriguez with the stored energy solar stove he's developing, and Irvine Valley College students Django Mangalam and Zachary Ho with the rocket wood or dung burning stove for refugee populations and uh, generally for the developing world. And Noe Rodriguez is now uh, talking about his solar uh, solar design and where the it is salt uh, molten salt that is heated from the, the solar radiation that you're talking about right continue telling us about your model yes so the salt actually uh, the salt melts when it receives the sunlight the sunlight's energy and when it melts uh, it receives heat at constant temperature and then when it solidifies back into its shape um, it gives off that heat that it received during that phase transition. So that's really important. That was the key for our design is that uh, using that phase transition, we can store the energy from the sun and people can cook uh, a few hours later. So instead of where if you wanted to cook breakfast for the next day, uh, you don't need to wait until, say, noon until the sun comes up. You can use the stored energy from the stove and then cook the next day. That that application has uh, certain uses and some other designs too. I'm thinking because that's where that storage aspect was what was uh, a problem with so many solar energy um, uh, entities. So that's that's good news. That must. How long has that particular technology been uh, applied? Well, it's been around. I mean, this isn't something that's new, but we applied it in a in a way that's uh, unique. I think. Um, but this is this. Industrial salts have been used in this way for uh, anything from solar panels to uh, uh, solar energy collection. Uh, it's been around. And I know about thorium reaction. That's uh, our chemistry faculty talked about thorium using salt for uh, cleaner nuclear activity. But right. that, that's for, that was an earlier day and maybe for another day as well. Well, I want to ask all three of you, then the materials that go into each of your designs, your prototypes, how uh, readily available are those materials in the locales? where you um, intend for them to be used, and if not, where uh, do you expect, where would production be and how would distribution be dealt with? Let's start with Django. So for now, uh, me and Zach are choosing to manufacture these stoves at a local uh, water jet cutter. Uh, they're made Local to whom? Uh, it's in Costa Mesa. 
Our local, not yeah, their our, local. yeah, sorry, yeah, our local. Uh, yeah, so made, uh, right now we're making the prototypes here in California. Uh, they're made out of uh, 18 gauge stainless steel. Um, you do need a machine to uh, cut them out with or stamp them out with. So I don't know uh, how easy production would be in Africa. However, I do know uh, that the area we're in, we're surrounded by um, both, uh, you know, water cutters, laser cutters, and metal stampers. So um, production, at least for now, is probably not going to be in Africa. Uh, We really want to be able to, you know, monitor production and make sure everything is going all right. Uh, But maybe, you know, for the future, uh, yeah, I think it would be great if we could move production uh, to those areas and, you know, people there could, you know, make them, sell them, make a profit, make a living. I think that'd be great. Did you want to add to any of that, Zach? Uh, Partner to Django? Yeah, no, yeah, he basically covered everything but yeah um as far as the its construction is concerned and the materials that are used uh again it's just steel and that's everywhere so uh in terms of being able to innovate on it or readily configure its uh reconfigure its design for uh, from feedback uh from the our refuge the refugees that we're sending these to um again we can always readily do that and Noe, what about the materials that go into your model? How readily available would those be in the, the at the sites where they'd be actually used? Right. So the raw materials for the enclosure itself is just wood and uh, aluminum. So I'm not sure about the availability in areas such as rural India or Africa. But our plan is, uh, for the beginning, is to possibly start production here and then um, we can always work something similar to the Free Wheelchair Mission, which is a nonprofit, and they receive donations, and then people donate, and we send the. We're able to build the stoves using those donations, and then send them over to uh, those places. Okay, I know uh, listeners are leaning very close to their speakers, and they want to know how close each of these prototypes uh, are to the actual use in those settings that they're intended. Can you tell us, I know that you've got about 200, uh, Django, Django and Zachary, 200 of your models are, they are shipped already? Are they on their way at this point to uh, to Kenya? Uh, no, so that was actually um, a major change that uh, occurred for me and Zach is uh, we looked at 200 and we thought, you know, it, it would be great if we could send 200 of these stoves to 200 people and, you know, hopefully make their lives a little more easier and healthier. But we realized, um, you know, for the sake of innovation, if we do smaller runs, uh, more spread out, that gives us more time in between those runs to uh, change the design, make it better, add things on, take things off that aren't working, maybe change material, you know, so so that in the end, when we finally do get to uh, making 200 stoves in total, hopefully uh, our design will be much better, much more efficient, and uh, much more, uh, I guess you'd say, competitive in the clean cook stove industry. Okay. I'm, I'm concerned now because I know that there was, uh, there's in Nairobi, there's going to be a, a clean cook stove exhibition at the beginning of February. Are you going to yeah. make that deadline or that's... No, they'll, they'll you'll be there for that exhibit. They'll probably be made by then. I don't know if we'll be participating. We'd love to participate. That'd be great. Clean Cook Stoves International. So. Yeah, the the deadline is you still got it another week, I think, for the meeting the deadline for yeah. for entering. Yes, Zach. Yeah. Well, luckily uh, we have someone a, a contact uh, around these refugee camps by the name of Ronald, who we're actually sending our stoves to because his job is to donate uh, throughout multiple refugee camps. The, the the donations he's received. So through that line of contact, uh, we can definitely, in one way or another, be involved with that convention uh, by the time it comes around. And Noe Rodriguez, how how far along uh, is your prototype? I think it's not quite at the same stage because you're 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 wanting to boil water and uh, and sustain that and get it up to that, maintain that boiling, much less uh, cooking. So how where are you along in this? process. Right. Well, we still have a lot of testing to do. We have a lot of testing, a lot of uh, data collection, uh, making sure the components work the way they're supposed to. And then we have to make decisions based on the interior design configuration. Uh, you know, do we want uh, modules of the salt inside of the stove? And then do we want uh, a location specific locations in, say, India to be able to distribute these modules, or do we want just the entire salt to be just poured in like a washing machine soap 
uh, into the stove. So those are decisions we have to make, and uh, also about the materials for uh, conducting the heat inside of the stove, and uh, many decisions still to be made. Okay. Well, I I know people are interested as we're wrapping up here. Uh, since this is not the kind of intellectual property that you're closely guarding, that is my thought, this is about doing good, about getting exposure and expanding the model and that kind of thing. Is there, I would like for each of you to answer, we can start with Zach, um, where any listener could come and see a demonstration of your products in, at the phase they're at. You can invite listeners to see what you're doing. I know there's a picture in the Orange County Register of the two of you firing up a stake on uh, the rocket model. But um, is there an opportunity, if all, all three of you could answer, where uh, listeners could watch your product uh, being worked at and, and, and tested? This is Zach. Um, let's see here. At the moment, uh, there, we don't have a specific venue for which we can showcase these stoves, uh, but again, with digital media, we can we can have our listeners access th- how these demonstrations wherever they are. Uh, we can have um, we're probably having uh, sooner or later uh, video broadcasts, uh, and especially just how they're doing in Africa. So if you wanted to see, you know, a real life demonstration, real time, and uh, where it's real life application for its intended users uh, are, are, is put into use, um, again, I guess through digital media would be our first. So we're going to look at YouTube, perhaps? You put up a YouTube, and what would, what would be the, the keyword to use to, to pull up your YouTube video? Uh, rocket Stove. Irvine. Uh, Irvine Rocket right. Stove? Yeah. Exactly, okay. or Open Source International, Aussie is what it stands for. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so like Zach said, we don't really have a, you know, a place where we, you know, demonstrate this thing every week, but, um, you know, if people, yeah, if people really want to see it, we'll probably be posting a YouTube video of it sometime in the future, and if they're really enthusiastic and a YouTube video is not good enough, I, I don't mind if people, I don't know, drop by my house and I can show them in my backyard. That's where we've done all our testing for this stove so far. So, I mean, if someone is really, really enthusiastic on seeing this thing get fired up and, you know, run, then I don't, I don't have, I have no problem, uh, you know, firing it up in my backyard and showing them. Well, we're not going to have all, the people who know where, where Django lives, that, yeah. that's a sufficient population. We're not going to have everybody come stalking <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> yeah. So, Noe, and about yours as we wrap up the interview here, where might people be able to view where you are coming along and see the, the magic of this solar stove? Well, every quarter here at UCI, we have a big fall design review for the School of Engineering, uh, where all the projects come in and they showcase their designs. That was the fall. Right. This is so winter. Every every quarter they have it at okay. the end of the quarter. So maybe around March is when we'll they'll start. Uh, so how will you post that? Where could people get a hold of you um, to find that out? By email or and the email would be us. Uh, for me, it would be noer at uci.edu. Okay. And there's also there's also my partner Linnicker Fuang and then uh, Greg Tomashiro and uh, Professor Dun Rankin. He's easy to reach. Anybody right. can get right. faculty on the the web. They can get their profile and their uh, email address. Well, guys, I really I know there's more. There's cultural considerations and other things to talk about. And so we'll maybe get an update. That's what I love to do. When I I, I know we've got so much more material, we we'll keep you in the loop. Keep the listeners in the loop with your various. Um, with your uh, whole progress that you're making. Uh, congratulations, all of you, for getting uh, this kind of a, these two prototypes along this way. And, and I, let's face it, being examples to people about the, the rewards of, of making these kinds of inroads are, are, are really, I'm sure, really huge. So Zachary, Ho, Django, Mangalam, and Noe Rodriguez, thank you so much for bringing your solar stove prototypes to the show today. I want to thank you a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, I'm going to play a little background music, and I'm going to dial up our next guest, Tom Patterson, who is going to bring us to the airwaves here, his latest book called Informing the News, the Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism. Thanks for staying with us, folks. We'll be right back. That was the appliance, uh, food music. I hope you all enjoyed that. My next guest here on back to 
Ask a Leader is Tom Patterson. He is the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press and teaches at the Joan Shorenstein Sign Center on the Press, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Among Tom Patterson's award-winning books are The Vanishing Voter, which looks at the causes and consequences of electoral participation, Out of Order, dealing with uh, political communication, and The Unseeing Eye on Public Opinion in the Past Half Century. Tom Patterson's research has been funded by the Ford, Markle, Smith-Richardson, Pew, Knight, Carnegie, and National Science Foundations. He's received his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota somewhere back in the 70s, and he comes to us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tom. Oh, Thank you, Claudia. Good to have you on today. My pleasure. As you say in your book, I'm going to open with a quote of yours, the role of the journalist is to make the un- seen visible. And I just want to take a moment. There was a lovely obituary of a scrappy uh, veteran reporter, Susan Lasky, with the New York Times covering finance and economics. She just died last month, and she claimed a lot of the real work of uh, and the role of the, the media is, quote, the daily grind of less glamour stories about state and local government. That's where our watchdog role is so important because no one else is watching. So it's that whole idea of seeing and unseeing and revealing. So in your book, the uh, in your book, uh, I'd like to know who is your intended audience, and uh, I can imagine there are several. Well, there are several. Uh, obviously, it's aimed at journalists. It's a kind of a wake-up call to journalism, I think, and. Uh, and therefore also to journalism students who I think are being disserved uh, by many of the programs in the country. They're taught uh, how to do interviews. They're taught how to do uh, observation, go out go out to the scene of a news event and observe what happened or try to find out what happened at the scene. Uh, but they're not given much training at all in sort of how to use information and how to understand the context in which so many of these news events are are, are embedded. Uh, you know, a good example of that, I think, is statistical literacy. There have uh, been lots of studies that have looked at news reporting, and uh, the misuse of numbers is uh, is rampant. Uh, a friend of mine headed a, a board that uh, put out monthly uh, statistics, and uh, he said they were always afraid whenever they had statistics showing that there was a continuing rise in some value, some economic value, but it was slowing down. Uh, and they would say, well, in their releases, that the you know the rate has, uh, has slowed down. And uh, oftentimes they get news reports out of that, which would say that it was going down, which is quite different. Uh, so, um, right. you know, I think there are lots of areas in which journalism uh, kind of needs to step up its game. Uh, and about the only way you can do that is to have journalists who have a better understanding of the subjects they cover. Well, I, it does remind me of a pitched battle I had with a sibling years ago, and I think your book proves that we were both right. I used to say that the poli-sci major uh, came into journalism with a better preparation, and my brother argued about, no, it was a journalist, and so you're you said this. You said you said it straight there that way. So, and um, I want. Well, I think I think uh, Claudia. Let me interrupt. I, you know, I think what you'd like is to have both. I mean, right. Certainly, there is there are important things that journalists in journalism need to know and understand. I mean, so the, there is training to be done there. Uh, but at the same time, uh, journalists need to to have an understanding of their of their subject area. Uh, you know, the economics reporting I think is a good example of that. If you if you look at the pattern in economic reporting. We get a lot of uh, reports on the financial industry. We get a lot of reports on, on high-tech and the new IPOs that are coming out of high-tech. Well, they account for about 10% of the national economy. Uh, what accounts for most of the jobs and uh, job growth in the United States? It's small business. Uh, how often do you see stories on small business? They're very rare, and one reason they're very rare is that there are very few journalists who really understand small business and can report accurately on it. And we do see that over and over. And, and and the size, what's the size of small business? I don't think much of the public could even uh, pass that quiz. Well, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, we can't, uh, we can't lay at the foot of journalists uh, uh, kind of all the things that we don't know and we should know about. Uh, you know, there are many sources of misinformation and ignorance in the, in the public. And, you know, so we, I mean, that's a pretty long list. But, you know, we do depend on journalists uh, when it comes to current events to giving us 
accurate uh, portrayals of what's going on, and in a context that allows us to understand uh, what those things mean. Uh, uh, a good example of that is the coverage in the 90s leading up to 9-11. Uh, you know, 9-11 was not the first terrorist attack on on the U.S. Uh, there was an initial attack 10 years earlier on the World Trade Center in New York. There were the bombing of two U.S. embassies in Africa uh, in the late 90s, a bombing of a U.S. destroyer. Uh, in uh, Yemen Harbor in, in 2000. Uh, and journalists covered those events, uh, talked about the number of people wounded, the number of people killed uh, who might have done it. Uh, but there was very little digging at all into kind of the underlying forces that were worked there. What are the religious, cultural things that are happening in the in the Middle East that are leading to this rise in, in international terrorism? And then we have 9-11, and there was terrific reporting on the first responders and what you know, Mayor Giuliani did and what Governor Pataki of New York did and in the president. response. But very little at all in terms of who might have done this. And journalists were pretty much uh, befuddled about you know, who, might have, uh, who might have carried out this attack. And, and Tom... Uh, Yes, and one la- one other aspect of the the, the lead up uh, toward nine eleven was that that could have also been addressed was the whole asymmetry of the attack. A much uh, a very small, barely uh, mar- marginally financed uh, unit that could wreck so much damage and could r- sort of reconfigure the whole uh, and the uh, security paradigm in the 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 country that was under the attack. Well, that's right, and and certainly we had lots of indicators uh, that this was a rising force, and this was going to be something we'd have to contend with. And in fact, in uh, what was it, ninety eight? I think uh, President Clinton uh, uh, ordered uh, some cruise missiles uh, loosed on Afghanistan, uh, and they had an intelligence report that Osama bin Laden. Uh, was camped there uh, with his terrorist network, and uh, apparently the cruise missiles got there a couple of hours too late. Uh, uh, and how did that get treated in the press? Well, it got treated as wag the dog because that was the same time that uh, Clinton was going through the Lewinsky scandal. And, right. Uh, uh, there were just a lot of indicators out there that uh, this was going to be a force that we'd have to come to grips with, and uh, but very little coverage at all on the force as opposed to a few incidents uh, that did get uh, front-page coverage. And in our midst, the other uh, some other examples that we could briefly talk about here is how the whole Edward Snowden um, phenomenon has been covered. It was more of a sort of a, uh, a spy intrigue versus the er- an earlier coverage of the impact of the penetration of the of everyone's privacy with uh, the NSA's capacity, along with telecommunications companies, to tap into any and everything. No, and I, again, I think you're right on that point. Uh, you know, I mean, these things. The problem with with all of, almost everything uh, that happens in the public sphere is that at some point it gets turned into a soap opera, and uh, we're seeing that with uh, with uh, Snowden. Uh, we see that repeatedly in Washington. It, it's uh, the political game that gets the coverage: uh, who's up, who's down, who's winning, who's losing. Uh, we get very little of the substance of why are they fighting? What's important here uh, for the public to know? Or if you look over the at uh, at Europe and the coverage of the of the euro crisis, uh, you know, you'd think it was the Germans against the Greeks, or it was uh, Angela Merkel against uh, President Sarkozy or Hollande. And uh, you know, the problem is that uh, the euro crisis is is a banking crisis, and we get very right. little coverage of that at all. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Tom Patterson of the JFK School of Government, who's recently published Informing the News, the Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism, here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the the web at KUCI.org, near newsstands all around the world. And so uh, we're looking at examples of where it's getting missed. It's The journalists have a share in this, and of course, the way they're covering they're, how they select the message from uh, the partisan staying on message kind of effort. It's uh, it's really uh, delivering the public a um, a, a lot of uh, tripe here uh, in terms of following complicated things that really matter. And we can see that when we're, we puzzle at how people don't seem to be voting their interest when uh, that they're getting the, the the news packaged in a way that's it's it's feeding that salacious kind of. Uh, Mind versus uh, informing them so that the, it gives it, it the public doesn't have uh, a better a deeper literacy about uh, their whole uh, to, to guide their voting behavior. So um, I I so in going with that then uh, 
goodness, I <laughs> the um, now we see increasingly. Uh, as you've talked about in your book, a shift toward uh, other outlets, of course. But, and I love your appraisal of the worth of the Internet. And I quote you, the Internet is once a gold mine of solid content and a hellhole of misinformation. So it, it's, <laughs> I appreciate that. So, But as we're talking about this, this direction here, uh, is there a hazard with the, with the Internet uh, dispensing and all that? Is there hazard with pitching uh, niche news to target audience, whether it's uh, on cable or uh, uh, on the Internet, it's pitching the news to the tor- target audience that journalists further fragment the media-consuming society. Well, I think the niche audience uh, is a lot of things. And, uh, okay. you know, some of the places that people go are, are packed full of uh, trustworthy, relevant information about public affairs. And then other places, uh, you know, are in that hellhole of misinformation category where, you know, it's almost buyer beware. And I think what's important is for people to kind of know which is which. Uh, and one of the difficulties, I think, that uh, the public faces with, with conventional journalism uh, is that journalists are not willing in some ways, to take a stand. Uh, we have a, a he said, she said brand of journalism right. where, you know, if there's a Republican who says something, does something, they've got to turn to a Democrat to discount it or, or come up with a disclaimer. And they're put out there side by side. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, you know, sometimes they're both half-truths or, or partial truths. Uh, but sometimes someone's being pretty straightforward and someone else is being pretty disingenuous. But uh, the journalist is not sorting that out for the public. I think the best case of that is over the last 10 years, if you look at the coverage of global warming, uh, you know, the voices that argue and, and that are in line with the scientific consensus have gotten a little more than half the coverage, but nearly half the coverage has, gone, has gone to people who are disclaiming, uh, who are saying that global warming isn't happening or if it is happening right. as a result of natural forces and the like. Then you look at public opinion and you've got nearly half the American public either denies uh, the fact of global warming or attributes it to uh, causes other than human activity. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to have a public debate about an issue of that kind if the public, half the public is living in one world and the other half is living in the other world. And, uh, you know, journalists have to have to sort of step up their game in those cases and 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 tell the public uh, what it is as opposed to simply saying, well, here are two things, take your pick. Well, I'm concerned about that. I mean, I'm, the more I'm uh, continuing to, to bone up on all these topics and trying to do a good job with this program and to be generally uh, as best as I can voter and a, a, a participant in society, I mean, I'm becoming increasingly aware of the lack of follow-up. I sort of stare at my radio and I think, what? You're going to leave it at that journalist or or, or the article that's um, and I, and I I have an example of it, it's a small one. It doesn't it doesn't have an impact on us, but it's it's a it's a glaring example in in a way when uh, as Syria is being brought up now. I'm surprising myself bringing this up that but it's in preparing for other um, another interview. I I had learned though that it's being called a civil war when in fact it is an uprising and that distinction is a very very large one and and we won't appreciate what's going on in Syria we won't appreciate what the prescription is for negotiations um, if we don't understand that important distinction do you agree well I, I do agree and uh, the other thing about the Syrian coverage uh, you know that's a very important issue in the world yes. and uh, you know the world gets undercovered in the American press and uh, you know if u s troops are involved if u s interests are directly involved if some American gets hurt it's a front page story but by and large if not it's not and uh, you know one could ask the question of well what's happened to the Syrian coverage uh, since the chemical weapons uh, uh, event the development and uh, there was a lot of coverage then uh, and uh, the situation is changing pretty dramatically now uh, and uh, you know, it gets covered, but it doesn't get very much coverage, and, and, and it's often the coverage is in the context that you're talking about, uh, a misportrayal of what's happening on the ground in Syria. Completely. And so it's, it's I think it's sort of tilting uh, the, uh, the the prospects for uh, how it's being negotiated uh, with, I think, some false choices here, and, that's, uh, and those false choices will have an impact on our own security uh, if um, uh, this this, of course, our pursuit. So, um, but there's some other things I also wanted to take up. You've 
mentioned in your book that the national public radio audience has considerably multiplied. I think you said something like 500%. And I'm wondering, though, if that's at the same time that I'm noticing its content is being diluted. I, I think the journalists working with that Corporation for Public Broadcasting would agree with me. What do you think? Well, uh, I haven't studied uh, national public radio content that closely. Uh, you know, I'd, I've looked at some of the studies that have looked at NPR, and when you compare uh, NPR with most of the broadcasting outlets, uh, you know, it does a better job of, of covering public affairs, and it's one reason why its audience has expanded over the last 20 years, whereas virtually every other broadcast outlet uh, has seen a, a decline in its audience. Uh, but whether it's been holding up the standard that, uh, you know, it had developed over time, whether that's beginning to kind of erode, uh, you know, that I, I just don't have information to answer your question. I think it's an important Important question. Uh, I just don't uh, have the uh, the basis for for an informed response. Well, I guess I I measure it by how many times I'm leaning and waiting for the the shoe to drop in the interview with uh, a pursuit in a, a point that's being made um, and that kind of thing. And I, I hear more of a, a sort of a propensity for them to use that balance notion, which is a balance of uh, maybe not balanced perspectives, but um, just like you were talking about in the the case of the global warming, uh, the global climate change where, uh, you know, uh, 1%, 5% of scientists are disclaiming that there's a change when the, the remainder, you know, balancing nine, 95% with 5%. So, and I'm, I'm hearing that kind of bounce going on as well as, um, uh, trying to think of one other example there. Um, it, it'll come to me here. Um, so uh, it's, it's something to, to listen for. Um, Anyway, no, I, and, I think you're right. I mean, the, uh, for sure, uh, NPR engages in that balancing act uh, of he said, she said, and not trying to this, sort this. through the, the truth value of the various statements. Uh, you know, absolutely, they do that. I mean, it's a safe form of journalism, uh, whether it's on NPR or any other news outlet. If you want to keep your access to your to your sources, and, and journalists depend very heavily on official sources for their news tips, if you want to maintain your access, uh, you report what they say. You don't question what they say. And, uh, you know, I think that is an endemic problem in, uh, in American journalism, and NPR is no exception to that. Well, I guess um, there were other questions I had. Um, I'm going to just, well, there's two things I'm going to pry in here uh, with, the, with your time remaining. I, I think as far as, because we haven't mentioned really the, so much about the economics of journalism, but as far as that goes, how useful do you think the metaphor of fast food and our brains wiring explains the intractable problem of the salacious news coverage? It, is, is it of any use? Um, the steady campaign to deepen the journalistic experience that you're talking about in your book, uh, will, it, uh, will the employing knowledge-based journalism help to uh, uh, turn around the bleeding, uh, leading with the bleeding kind of uh, paradigm in journalism? Well, it's certainly the case that if you're in the president's cabinet, you've got to compete with Lindsay Lohan for uh, for, for press coverage. You know, uh, and I do think the press has gone overboard uh, with infotainment. Uh, I understand their problem; uh, they've been losing audience. Uh, what's interesting is when you look at the evidence, uh, that's a pretty good short-term strategy. You can hold on some people who have a marginal interest in news by by you know talking about celebrity and the like. Uh, in the long run, though, it, it actually ruins your brand. Uh, and what we've seen is that a lot of the news outlets that were pretty successful using that formula early on have lost audience more rapidly than others. Uh, and the reason they've lost uh, that audience is that the people who really care about news have come to conclude that the news is too light, not trustworthy enough, and they've moved to other sources, uh, one of which, by the way, is NPR. Yes, and they that's right. That's right. And so, um, and then the, um, as you said uh, also in your book about the, and I, folks, I want to make sure everybody knows that uh, at the website, www.vintagebooks.com, you can get your copy of of his book. And so, um, but I, I wanted to uh, also bring in as a, a last question, there's no mention of muckraking. Does it not serve a legitimate role or are there just so few of them? 
Well, I think there are fewer today. I mean, I think that's one of been one of the adverse effects of the declining revenues that most news organizations have. You know, if you look at the important investigative reporting, almost all of that has been done by the nation's newspapers, uh, and they're the ones that have been hit the hardest by the uh, by the downturn in 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 audience. So, and that's one of the easy things for them to cut. Now, to be honest, they were never all that. In, many of them were never all that enthusiastic about it anyway because it's very expensive. You have to put people uh, on assignment for weeks to find those stories and usually make people mad when you find them. Oh, they make they always make me mad, but it's still required reading. I have no choice. My, uh, yeah. Things uh, I've had Greg Palestine once, and I I get from time to time pieces from him, and I'm sort I'm just fascinated with how it's a it's just such a whole different frame of reference, and it's it, for me it's very refreshing to read that. And but it does make me mad. It's not the kind of thing you can read before knocking off right. at the end of the day because it's it's telling you what you got to live with and what you have to address and what you can't. It's it's a bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> well, we're part of the problem. We like like happy news. Um, and, you know, sometimes happy news is is fluff. Uh, sometimes it's important, but oftentimes the most important news uh, is that deep story about what went wrong. That way we can step in and correct it as a, as a government and as a people. But I think it didn't make us so much angry as uh, like, oh, so that's what it was when David Kirkpatrick wrote up that terrific piece in the New York Times two Sundays ago on the Benghazi flare-up uh, where Ambassador Stevens and a few others were killed. And as you said, those deeper reaching, better covered articles have a lot more traction. They move around, are shared with many more people. So there's hope with a return on that kind of focused journalism there in that knowledge-based model that David Kirkpatrick uh, ran with. And he does it on a regular basis with the New York Times, but he's not the only one. But that was a great example, I noticed, and I'm sure you did too. Well, that's one of the bright lights on the internet is uh, the pieces that hang around what they call evergreen stories. And yes. The, and the stories that get passed around tend to be the deeper, more informative ones. The fluff tends to last uh, about uh, two hours, uh, but some of the other stuff lasts for weeks, even months. Indeed. Well, that's all the time we have. Tom Patterson, who's recently published Informing the News, the Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism, where you can get your copy through the website www.vintagebooks.com. Tom Patterson's with the JFK School of Government. Thank you for your time, and stay safe with the deep freeze over there. Oh, no, but thank you for having me on, Claudia. I enjoyed it very much. Okay. Well, we certainly had. Thank you so much. Talk with you next week. Thanks, folks, for listening. Time, time, me boys, these are the rates of-